Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And he actually went on to say in verse 14, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. This is the Passover feast. And again, here in second half of April, we just a few weeks back had Passover and a very different Passover for the nation of Israel this year. Because, of course, in this 2020, during this COVID-19 crisis and all that's happening on this planet, where most of the planet is in a stay-in or a lockdown and all these just incredible events going on that are almost impossible to wrap our minds around, even this night as we're gathered here right now, is that Israel was gathered together for their Passover, and they were not allowed to go outside. So the nation of Israel, they're in their promised land, and of course we know in the end times, we know that Israel will come back together as a nation. God prophesied these things. And if you go back to when Pastor Chuck from Calvary Costa Mesa was alive, that's, that was such a big thing for him and all those who saw the return of the Lord imminent, is that Israel has to be a nation for the Lord to come back as we understand prophecy and they've been there now for over 60 years, and they have Jerusalem as their capital. Our country, our president, recognizes it, Jerusalem, as the capital of the Jewish people. And so that timeline, that those events for the return of the Lord, a key element, because we're told that these things in Israel, in the Sabbath, you see this, you see the abomination of desolation, the Sabbath, and all this stuff, it's very Jewish in the context of Matthew 24. And we know that there's a 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, a seven-year period where God's going to work with the nation of Israel that uh, is apart from the church. And so Israel is huge. And in the midst of all these things going on, even this night, it's worth considering the thought for as disruptive as our lives have been, 
where no one had masks. Now you have to wear masks. Some cities require masks to even walk outside. You can't go into my Albertsons and Huntington Beach today if you don't have a mask on. That's brand new. This is all just fluid and happening. That in all this stuff that's going on, Israel had a Passover a few weeks ago where no one went outside. And it's been pointed out to me that's the first Passover since this Passover, 3,500 years ago, where they're all indoors. I don't know if it means anything, but it's worth thinking about because that is a profound thought, the Jewish nation from them being birthed here in this text. And now in the year of our Lord, 2020, our generation, this, is ha- this happened just a few weeks ago with their Passover. And God's got our attention in America. He's got the planet's attention, and he certainly has Israel's attention, and they just had Passover. Now, Passover is a very special feast. There are three main feasts for the Jews. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover and Pentecost are very close to each other. Tabernacles in the autumn, these are in the spring. And these are the feasts that the Jewish men required three times a year to come stand before the Lord and give an account on these feasts. Thus, when Jesus was crucified, it was during Passover. On the day of Pentecost, it was during that Pentecost feast, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church with Peter and John, their preaching, and the church was birthed with thousands of people. And Tabernacle speaks of the kingdom age and all these wonderful things as well later on. And Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is associated with that as that, that sacrifice of the, the one, the, the scapegoat, one goat being killed, and then the other goat released in the wilderness, very typological of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. But this feast is very much a typology of Jesus Christ, profoundly so, and so for 1,500 years before Christ came, they had this feast, and they were to keep it. At various times, the Jewish people kept it well. Sometimes they didn't keep it well. But it was theirs from the Lord. In revivals under Josiah and Hezekiah saw them keep the feast in a higher level than they previously had under other kings during those times that they reigned, like around 700 B.C. and about you know 600 B.C., Josiah and whatnot. Now, This is the instruction for the Passover, and this is what we're going to look at here for application. The first thing that we see in verse 1 is it says, This month shall be the beginning of months, your beginning of months. I really like this, and I mentioned this in the verse-by-verse study, because to me it just reminds us that in Christ we are a new creation, and when we pass from death to life, which the Bible makes very clear we do, it's a new beginning. We get a new beginning. These guys got a new calendar. Could you imagine if when we gave our life to Christ, when you think if you gave your life to Christ or if you did so through this message tonight, watching this online, if suddenly your day planner changed? Like right now it's April and I always get a day planner like late November, early December because I start getting ready for the next year. I'm using the current year's day planner. I'm a day planner person, but I get a day planner. I start projecting out for that first quarter. And so I'm a very much a January 1st kind of guy. I definitely think like, calendar, January 1st. But when we look at the New Testament, you see Paul made decisions based upon the Jewish calendar. I want to be in Jerusalem by the feast, those types of things. So this is a common thing where we, even in America, we say we want to be, when I'll be home for Christmas, right? We're going to go be home for Thanksgiving and just, just different things, right? Calendars. Well, this calendar changed. When God gave the Passover lamb feast, the feast of Passover, he changed your calendar. Like they had had a calendar, probably the same as the Egyptians, but they had, a, they had a way they kept time, and God says, you know what, from now on, keep time a different way. We keep time based upon the Passover feast and the new beginning. 
It's a new beginning. And this is really important to understand because this is what makes faith in Jesus Christ so crucial is that it's a new beginning. It's a second birth. Jesus told Nicodemus, we must be born again. And Nicodemus said, am I going to go back into my mother's womb? Like like a new beginning with a second physical birth? Jesus said, no, that was of the flesh is flesh. That was of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. We are born again through faith in Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us alive. When we're born, we are born with the spirit, but we're spiritually dead to God. But when we hear the gospel message and we give our life to Christ, the Holy Spirit's convicting us to confirm that Jesus is who he is based upon the message that we're hearing of the gospel. And then we receive Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Not born of man, not born of blood or the will of man. See, the physical birth, but the spiritual birth. So when we give our life to Christ, we're born again. And it's like we were dead and then we're made alive. And we were in darkness and then we're brought into light. And suddenly it all you know, makes sense, like the light's on and we see the kingdom, and that's what God does. We are born dead spiritually in three ways. We're going to die physically, we're dead spiritually, and then we're going to die eternally and be separated from God for eternity apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We're born under the wrath of God. But when we give our life to Christ, we pass from that threefold triune death sentence to life. We are made alive spiritually, we're born again. We're promised eternal life here and now. We have eternal life now. We're walking in eternal life as believers, and the kingdom is it. Like, give us this day our daily bread. Like Jesus said, when you pray this way daily, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's about the kingdom. So we have that eternal life in us right now, and even though we face death, we don't have the substance of death. It's we, we have to transcend dimensions, but it's the shadow of death, but not the substance of death. So even in that, Jesus comes for us and we transcend it. Man, but we have to face those, we have to face that at some point that we're going to transcend dimensions and Jesus comes for us. He's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And Psalm 23 tells us the Lord is my shepherd, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So we know he's coming for us and to receive us. D.L. Moody, when he passed away, the famous evangelist. There in the room when he was passing away, he said to his wife, he's here for me. He stood up and he dropped dead. And I was in the room when Melissa Henning Camp, Jeremy Camp's first wife, passed me at the Lord. And I watched her get out of her deathbed and go this way to go be with the Lord. The Lord came for her and I was in the room and I saw it. I know exactly what I saw. I didn't see Jesus, but I saw her transcending dimensions and come out of a coma and climb out of a deathbed. And so that's what's going to happen. Eventually. But when we give our life to Christ, we literally pass from death to life. And that's why 2 Corinthians says, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are new. And that's what's happening here. I mean, this is a type of that because he gave them a new beginning, a whole new life, a whole new calendar. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. He gives us a new beginning. When I gave my life to Christ in the spring of 1987, it was the text from John chapter 19 that did it, where Jesus said it is finished on the cross. And having a religious relationship with the Lord before that, I always tried to do more good than bad, but I always did more bad than good. That was the problem, kind of like Romans 7, if you know the passage there with Paul. But it was religious. But when I read it as finished, and I realized I was saved by grace, then I knew that I truly could be assured of my salvation with who Christ is and what he'd done for me. Like the slate was wiped. I realized I didn't have to work off past sins, 
but I just need to receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ who paid the price for those sins. It was a new beginning. In fact, at the time, I had Greg Laurie's books on Ben Born Again and a new beginning. I literally, I literally read it and had it. So I knew I had a new beginning giving my life to Christ. So we should ask ourselves right now as you're watching this, have you had that new beginning? Have you passed from death to life? Do you know about God or do you have a relationship with God? When our kids were growing up, we used to say to them, there's three types of people on the planet. Those who don't know about God and are just lost. Those who know about God but don't have a relationship with God. A lot of church people. Vernon McGee's, the famous preacher, used to say the hardest people to reach are the people in your church who aren't saved. And then having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We all need a new beginning. It's super important, especially in April 2020. I mean, it does seem like the end of the world in some ways. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who knows? It certainly has our attention, right? If your God was entertainment, you're not at the university or school. If your God was, uh, well, that's education. If your God was education, you're not there. And if God's entertainment, no one's going to the cinemas. I mean, you could pull up Netflix or whatever, but that's your business. But they're not making a lot of movies right now. If your God is sports idols, then nobody's playing sports anywhere, pretty much on the planet right now. And in Taiwan, I guess everybody's robots watching them. That's even stranger, actually. And if your God is money, well, it looks like the global economy is just being train wrecked by forces beyond us. God's called the timeout on the planet. He's called the timeout on the planet in April 2020. And that timeout is, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? What are you living for? What are you going to die for? What's your purpose? Sit in your house, be still, know that I'm God. And when we're still know, know that he's God, and we're under these forced quarantines and these things, we have to ask ourselves, am I saved? I used to tell people that I believe in God, and followers of Christ would tell me, but are you saved? Because you have to be saved. You need a new beginning. You need a new calendar. You need, through the blood of the Lamb, a new calendar. We need God to give us a new calendar, a new start. We need a flashpoint. My flashpoint was John 19 in the spring of 1987. I watched my wife, before she was my wife, give her life to Christ on December 7th, 1987 at an outreach event. I spoke and shared my testimony. Pastor Brian Broderson got up, shared the gospel, and quite a few people responded, including this woman that I invited from my college class at Maricosta, Jenny George from Cardiff. And she will tell you that's when she gave her life to Christ. She passed from death to life. She got a new calendar, a new beginning. That's what happened. In the story of the Passover lamb, we need to understand the very beginning, it's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. And God wants to do a new work. He's definitely going to do a new work in the entire planet. And where we're going with all this, who knows? But it most importantly, needs to be a new beginning for us because that's our sphere of influence. That's our stewardship. So it's a new beginning, a new calendar to pass from death to life and give our life to Christ, to come under the blood of the Passover lamb. Because when you give your life to Christ, you're under the blood of the lamb, which is Jesus Christ. It's just new beginnings. Jesus Christ is about new beginnings. I came to set the captives free. I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. These things I've spoken to you that your joy would be full. New beginning. The sun sets you free. You're free indeed. That is a new beginning. That's the fullness. This is the shadow Christ on the cross and the risen from the grave at the right hand of the Father is the fullness. 
New beginning. Then we see every man shall take for himself a lamb, verse 3. So when we think about the Passover lamb, it's the accountability of an individual. And actually, you could broaden that a little bit. It's the accountability of a man his, for his wife and his family. But that's not really what I want to focus on here. It's individual accountability. What we do with Jesus Christ is individual accountability. We all have a responsibility of what we're going to do with Jesus Christ. He's not for me is against me. No decision is a decision for Christ. Either, yes, you want Christ to be Lord of your life and bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's a yes vote for Jesus Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. But a no vote is, I reject Jesus Christ. I just reject that. That's a no vote, and that's a very clear no vote. We see that throughout the Bible in the New Testament. But if you say, well, I, you know, I'm not ready. Uh, like, uh, you know, I'm open. But, you know, it's not, uh, you know, maybe like that's, that's a no vote too. Or I don't want to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Well, that is a decision. A no decision is a decision. No decision, to make no decision, is a decision of no. Because as we studied recently with the Lord, it's today. Today is the day of salvation. Everything's today with the Lord. But for unbelief, it's tomorrow. Maybe I'll go to church tomorrow. Maybe I'll go to the Harvest Crusade in 2020, but not 2019. It's tomorrow, but that's a no vote. Today is a, is a yes vote. And each person, it's each person's responsibility. It's important that we understand how significant each individual is to receive Christ or reject Christ. Because with 8 billion people on the planet right now being still and knowing that learning or thinking about life and their purpose of life. And there's all kinds of kooky beliefs that people are embracing during this time, but there's people turning to the Lord, is we all must stand before the Lord. Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians, knowing therefore the turn of the Lord, we persuade men, and they preach the gospel. And we're all going to give an account, and we're going to give an individual account. Like when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to give an account for Joey Moran. I can't hide behind my mom or my wife or my daughter my wife's a pastor's wife, my daughter's a pastor's wife, and my mom finished strong with the Lord and, you know, sent me to catechism and told me to fear the Lord. You know, like, I can't, I can't hide behind anybody. All things are naked and bare and open before him who must give an account. And the whole purpose of life is to come to know Christ. We're made by Christ, for Christ, and in him we consist. So when we pass from death to life with the new beginning, we must each individually decide. Like my wife, when she went forward on December 7th, 1987, she could say, well, that's for them to decide, but I'm not deciding. But she chose to decide to receive Christ. It's an individual choice. And whatever else goes on on this planet, know that every soul gives an account for what they do with Jesus Christ and his claim to be the creator of the universe and the savior of the world and his claim to be the only savior of the world. We must all decide what to do with Jesus. He's either going to be our Lord and savior or he's going to be our judge. He's either the one who was judged for our sins, or he's the one that's going to judge us for our sins. Because we're told in Revelation 20, when the books are open at the end of the age, it's Jesus who sits on the throne judging. And he, everyone confesses that he's Lord. So we're either going to confess him as Lord personally, individually, in this life, and receive him as Savior for the forgiveness of our sins, and to pass from death to life, and begin to fulfill the purpose by which the master potter made us, like the clay on the wheel, and fulfill our purpose. For we're told in Ephesians, we are his workmanship, his work of art. And we're either going to accept him and let him be working in us to produce that work of art that he made us to be. 
or we're going to reject him and not confess him as Lord, and then we're going to step into eternity, and we're going to confess him as Lord and realize how he missed everything that we were made for, and we're never going to be in his presence again. But it's one or the other, and we all must individually choose. There's an accountability for every person, and interestingly enough, in my own life, God sent me to Vermont in 1995 for a year of ministry, and I worked a regular job at the Sheraton Hotel there. We pastored a church in Econo Lodge, and it was, it was a great experience. God taught me a lot. But in that year, I led one person in a prayer to receive Christ, and that person was very excited to receive Christ when I led him in that prayer to receive Christ. And at the same time, I was teaching through Luke, and I was teaching the study. The same week, I taught the study where Jesus goes across the sea to a new thing, Gennesaret, and the one crazy person comes out naked and screaming and demon-possessed, legion, and the Lord delivers him, puts him in right from the mind, and commissions him to go home to his family and tell him what great things the Lord had done for him. And what the Lord taught me in teaching Luke the same week that I led someone to Christ in Vermont, the only person I led in a prayer in Vermont, 14 months of my life to lead one person in prayer to Christ, was the value of one. So even though we might say the accountability of one is very strong, I also want to move forward from this by saying the value of one. You and I and the people around us are all very important. God values and loves humanity, and he sees the individual. And what God taught me in the year of 1994 and 1995 is never see a multitude and never see empty seats. See who's there, see what God's doing, and always the value of one. And even in the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he's speaking to thousands of people at different times. But you notice it's really built upon, the Gospel stories are always built upon one-on-one, like the woman at the well, the centurion. It's individuals. So even as each person had to get a lamb and decide what they're going to do, are you going to go get a lamb? And are you going to do what God's told you to do with this lamb? Because you're accountable for it. You're either in the promises or you're cut off. Either you get the lamb and you're in, or you're cut off because you didn't get the lamb. It's that simple. But there's the value of the individual. There is the value of the individual. It's not like the angel of death went through the nation of Egypt and passed over these Jewish houses and didn't know who was in those houses. Jesus knows the hairs on our head. There wasn't one person of the Israelite people that God didn't know every detail about their life on the Passover night. God works with the individual. He died on the cross for individuals. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, but he saves us individually from our sins when he becomes our savior. So we see that that individual choice, each person, every man, every woman, every child, what you say about Jesus Christ and the lamb. Do you go to the lamb? We also see that this lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. We see that in verse 5. He had to be without blemish, and we know that Jesus Christ is without blemish. We are told that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and though he had committed no transgression. One thing absolutely emphatically clear in Scripture is that Jesus Christ never sinned. That is established beyond a doubt. He was born of the Virgin Mary, so he doesn't even have an earthly father. He's the son of God. Adam started out without sin. The first, Jesus, we're told Jesus is the second Adam. But the first Adam, Adam sinned. But Jesus, Adam was created without a sin nature, but a choice to sin, and he did sin. 
And in Adam, all sin and die. So he passed on the sin seed in all the human race, which we're all born with, male and female, to this day. But Jesus Christ came to the Virgin Mary. That's why the virgin birth is so critical, because if, Ad, if Jesus' real dad is Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus is the sinner, because Joseph from Nazareth was a sinner. He's the son of Adam. But Jesus is not a sinner. And Adam fell in three transgressions, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And Jesus Christ faced Satan, who, in a sense, took the title deed from earth when Adam sinned and submitted to Satan. When Jesus was tempted, those same three temptations, he was victorious. He had victory when tempted with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Where Adam failed, Christ, the second Adam, succeeded. And Jesus is sinless. Even on the cross and going to the cross, no less than five times from Pilate to the Roman centurion and others, they all said, we find no guilt in this man. Caesar and civil court found no guilt. All they could do is put over his head in three languages, king of the Jews. And for that, he was guilty because he is the king of the Jews. And he's the king of kings and he's coming. But in his first coming, king of the Jews, because he fulfills the messianic promises of Genesis, the type of Genesis 22, where Abraham offered up Isaac, the prophetic word concerning the tribe of Judah, the scepter shall not depart. Jesus, of course, is from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, and he's from the house of David, all of it. Mary's a descendant of David, all of it. Jesus was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Peter would say in the New Testament, we've not been redeemed with gold and silver, but by the spotless Lamb. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that's what the Apostle Peter said. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher, an honorable man, an empathetic human being, or a great religious, moral history, historical person. Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God. And he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he fulfills this spotless lamb without blemish. He comes to fulfill this, and that was made very clear in the New Testament writings. So no sin for Jesus. We all must decide what we do with Jesus, and we need to have to write Jesus, Jesus without sin. God in the flesh without sin. And of course, it was John the Baptist who said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he also said, now he's the greatest of all prophets. And then he also said, I have seen him bear witness that this is the Son of God. So the Son of God is the Lamb of God, John chapter 1. The Son of God is the only one that can be the Lamb of God because the Son of God is the only sinless, spotless Lamb that has no blemish. Because if I die for you, I got plenty of blemish. If you die for you, you die for your blemish. All the people that we love and aspire and esteem in this country or in this planet, in our timeline, who we admire, the most benevolent giving people, they can't die for you. They die for their own sins. They cannot be the acceptable substitute. Now, this is a type. A lamb is not an acceptable substitute for a human being. Because we're created with the cognitive capacity to know God and worship God. A lamb is not. So it's a temporal. But Jesus Christ is God. And if the wages and the consequence of sin is death, eternal death, then one, the Son of God, who's the Lamb of God, comes from eternity, and he is able to meet that payment because he is eternal. So his, his death on the cross pays the price of eternal separation from God 
in our place and restores us to full eternal life with God. He's the lamb without blemish. He is without blemish. And then the last thing that we see, so it's a new beginning. Each person must decide what to do with Jesus, the lamb. And Jesus is the lamb without blemish. Then we see in verse 7, we got to take the blood. And then we're told in verse 13, the Lord says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And thus we have this phrase that's often used in the church, under the blood. It's under the blood. Some ministries emphasize that phrase more. By the way, seeker-sensitive churches that don't want to offend people, they don't say under the blood. They take songs that sing about the blood, and they, take, they change the words of blood. How's that looking right now in April 2020? How's that looking on the day of the Lord? How'd you like to be a minister that pastors a church so you could feel churchgoers in your big building that they can't even come to right now and take the word blood out of songs that are praising and worshiping Jesus and depriving his people from singing about the blood? How's that working for you? Listen, we're under the blood, we're saved by the blood, and it's only his blood. It's the most precious element in human history is the spotless blood of God in the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because it is that blood that causes death to pass over us. It is that blood that allows him to bear the wrath of the Father in our place. And it is that blood that allows his righteousness to be imputed to us, to be declared righteous and glorious before the Father. You remove the blood, you remove everything. For the Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. My blood is pumping, doing what it's doing, and that's my physical life. The life is in the blood. Max, my cat, Fitz and Lucy, my cavaliers, their blood is doing what blood does for los animales. Okay? They're doing what, their blood is doing what it does. The life is in the blood, Leviticus tells us. And the blood of Jesus, the life that's in that blood, shed for us, gives us eternal life, which our blood could never do. The life is in the blood. We have to come under the blood. We can't be saved by moral works. For if righteousness comes through good works and Christ died in vain, but that blood was not shed in vain. It is faith in Jesus, which is faith in his blood, that pronounces us righteous. Esta no otro paso. There is no other way. That is the only way. It's the only way. I want to read this passage for you all from Ephesians as we wrap this up right now. We are told that in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were we who were dead, Christ made a, dead in trespasses and sin, God made alive through faith in his son. And we are told that it is his blood, by his blood, that we are saved. It's his blood. In chapter 2, Verse 13 says this. We were having no hope and without God in the world, even if we're religious going to church or totally pagan or whatever we might have been. But now Christ Jesus brought us who were once far off, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, brought near to God. We cannot be reconciled to God without the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot be reconciled to God without the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. In him we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us all. The forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ is through his blood. Again, that's Ephesians 1.7. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So the blood on the doorpost is super critical and very symbolic of being under Christ in our life. Now, that was a house, but for us, it's, it's us. We're under the blood. When Jesus was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, and he gave his life for us, the Jewish day starts at night. So the day that he died on the cross began at night. And that night, he took the Passover feast, and he had the Passover feast with his apostles. And as he took the bread and the cup from the Passover feast, he said, take this cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. So he took this Passover feast, and he took this cup of wine that was symbolic of the, the, the blood of the lamb, if you will, and he said, this is my blood. He took what was black and white and obsolete and said, this is me. I am fulfilling this feast from 1,500 years. I am fulfilling it right now. This is my blood which was shed for you, the cup of the new covenant, and which we're told is the everlasting covenant. And then the bread, of course, speaks of his body. The unleavened bread speaks of his body given to us because this was the perfect sinless life. And leaven equals sin, so bread without leaven is like no sin. That's how that works. So Jesus, from the institution of this feast, here in this passage tonight, it ran its course for 1,500 years with the Jewish people until Christ came, and on the, night, the day he died on the cross, that began at night, he took these elements and said, this is all about me. What John the Baptist had said, Everything pointing in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. He said, it's all about me. And Passover is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross and rising from the grave for our sins. He is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And we must choose what to do with him. Even as Pilate said to the nation, what should I do with Jesus? They said, crucify, crucify, away with him. We must choose to receive Christ or to stay away with him. But we choose Jesus Christ. And I know most of you watching this choose Jesus Christ. And some of you watching maybe have never chosen Jesus Christ. So you need the new calendar. You need the new beginning. And you have an opportunity for a new beginning right now. Right now, you can ask Christ into your life. You can ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. You don't have to remember them all. He knows them all anyways. The ones you remember and the ones you don't. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And ask him to come into your life and to forgive you. And he will do that. And he will fill, him with, he'll fill you with his spirit. His spirit will literally come in and dwell you. And he'll give you a new calendar, a new beginning. He'll make you a new creation. And he'll give you the power you need to live the life that you're intended to live. And you'll pass from death to life. And you'll pass from in Adam all sin and die to in Christ all are made alive. And where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. But you've got to come under the blood. When you receive Christ, it's like putting that blood on the doorpost, man. You've got to come under the blood and realize it's, the life is in the blood. And his blood saves you. Your blood condemns you. And so we've got to come under from our blood in Adam to his blood that saves us for full redemption. You see, we're told that the, the redemption of our souls is very costly. But he, would, he died just for you. If no one else believed, he would have died just for you. And the redemption of your soul is very costly because it's, it's bought with the blood, not of the Passover lamb, which is a type, but the blood with the lamb of God, who is the son of God. 
And God so loved the world that he gave that son for you that you can be saved and pass from death to life. And that is the invitation tonight for you. And if you're walking in this victory, praise the Lord. Don't let anything move you from faith and being under the blood. That is the safest place to be. If you're in quarantine, just imagine that you're under the blood and use that time for the Lord and to grow in your faith and grow in things that you can bring to the world for the kingdom when you get let outside again. But by all means, keep yourself under the blood. And if you're not there, then come to Christ and come under the blood.